Now, I apologise in advance if these sound effects make you need a bathroom break before we even begin. Hopefully, you're not at the start of a run or a long drive. You're not allowed to leave me a bad review, though, if you are. This is the risk you took, tuning in to the immersive experience of the Rewild podcast. Anyway, the reason you're now crossing your legs is we find ourselves in the watery world of the River Verde's white-clawed crayfish breeding centre, nestled away amongst the mountains of Italy. This picturesque setting is home to hundreds of these tiny freshwater crustaceans. These babies may not be classic cute, but with their big black eyes and miniature pincers, they are pretty adorable in their own right. Cuteness aside, it's their function in the ecosystem that the team here are interested in boosting. Whilst the surrounding hills might be more famed for the conservation of bears, it's important not to forget the little guys. In the intricately complex web of life, every strand has a role to play. Take one of them out, and the web becomes weaker. Crayfish, bears, and delightfully, even cheese has a role to play in this rewilding landscape. And I promise you now, I won't be leaving until I explore every tasty morsel to figure out why. The cheese, that is, not the crayfish and the bears. That is my commitment to you. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Central Apennines. Italy, famed for its food, its football, its history, architecture and art. Perhaps it should be just as famous for its nature. This is, after all, one of Europe's most species-rich nations, and rewilding here is looking to cement its place at the top. As we all know, Italy takes the form of a giant boot on a map, so where I am now, in the central Apennines, must be the laces. Wait, do fancy Italian boots have laces? Maybe the shin. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is I'm about halfway down the country. I've travelled to the small village of Petorano Sugizio, home to three members of the Rewilding Apennines team. It looks like a beautiful place to live. Terracotta-roofed townhouses, tiered upwards against imposing wooded hillsides. There is certainly a rustic charm. Mario, team leader for the organisation, is picking me up from the base of the village, where I spent the night in our camper. We wind our way up on snaking mountain roads to a high plateau, 1,300 metres above sea level. Juniper, beech, oak and pine stretch across the higher hills surrounding us. We walk a little way on snow-covered tracks to take in the fantastic views of the valley beneath us. Central Apennines are the highest uh, part of the Apennine Mountains in Italy. They are just in the middle of the Italian peninsula. Uh, it's a wildlife and biodiversity hotspot just a few kilometers from Rome. Let's say that uh, from Rome you can drive an hour by car and you already get uh, the first mountains of the central Apennines. So we have a uniqueness of species and this position in uh, the middle of the Mediterranean Sea uh, makes uh, this place a uh, real valuable uh, biodiversity hotspot. The Apennines, and Italy in general, have a large number of endemics. They have iconic subspecies like Marsican brown bear, which we'll come back onto in more detail, the Italian wolf and the Apennine chamois, but also full endemics like the Apennine yellow-bellied toad, the Italian sparrow, Apennine shrew and brook chub. The central Apennines have a 
experienced a lot of uh, human uh, uh, how to say interfer interferences or uh, human uh, uh, works in um, over the landscape there were uh, uh, very severe um, uh, loggings uh, and there was uh, this widespread uh, uh, sheep farming called the transhumans which actually modify the landscape. So many trees were cut, uh, there was a prevalence of meadows, grasslands, and in fact, uh, even here, if you look at these uh, mountains around, some of them are, are, are bare of trees because of this uh, tradition of uh, uh, sheep farming. And the goal is to, uh, as rewilders, we want to uh, help nature to restore itself. We know that nature can do the job much better than us. On a European level, Italy has done pretty well in preserving its nature. Helped along by huge mountain chains that act as ecological corridors, the Apennines running down the centre, and the Alps connecting to other countries in the northeast and northwest. Whilst these undulating regions have escaped the most intense human developments, they're still heavily utilised and fall short of the pristine wilderness they once would have been. Some people are still stuck to this idea of uh, development that dates back to post-war uh, period and they think that mountains uh, must be just uh, turned into ski resorts to be uh, profitable for the local communities. We believe uh, actually that uh, mountains and nature is the main asset of this country. And so if you, if you, if you get this right, uh... The bigger, bigger vision would be for the Apennines to connect through to the Alps and then onto Europe as well. So then that's one huge rewilding area for nature and, and importantly, I guess, as you say, a corridor of connectivity. And this work, I think, can be um, really the work of NGOs because uh, we as NGOs are complementing the work of protected areas outside protected areas. So we want to uh, make uh, the whole uh, country a wilder place. With so much nature remaining in the region, a large part of the rewilding team's work here is around promoting coexistence. Perhaps the term coexistence has negative connotations though. Maybe we need to work towards co-prosperity rather than settling merely for existence. Sure, there can be some challenges with bears and wolves on your doorstep, yet there's no reason these can't be overcome with some relatively simple solutions so that all species can then flourish, including humans. Ongoing monitoring of both habitats and species, also keeps the team busy. You can't protect or restore what you don't fully understand. Through tagging griffon vultures, uh, we want to know um, the movements of these uh, birds and we want uh, to address some uh, threats, uh, identifying them, of course, uh, through uh, the GPS points. We um, can follow the vultures, we can understand uh, uh, which uh, dead animals are feeding on and in some cases uh, we can find poison animals and we can prevent that uh, poison poisonings uh, become more serious because uh, sometimes we found dead uh, vultures and uh, we can remove uh, the source of the poison before other vultures or other scavenging uh, animals die. The population of the griffon vulture, because at the moment we have only griffon vultures, thanks to uh, reintroductions uh, in 1990s by the Forestry Corp at the time, uh, the population is about 350, 380. This is an estimate. It's uh, 
let's say, quite a good population, but not enough, especially if uh, we don't reduce uh, mortality due to interactions with humans, let's say. The vultures aren't necessarily being targeted themselves. As scavengers, their deaths are an unfortunate and predictable result of poison being used for other species. It once was legal in Italy to use poison for controlling animals, and in actual fact, the practice was encouraged by the state as an efficient control method for certain species. The laws changed in the 1970s, but it still lingers on illegally in some areas, usually in retaliation against wolves killing livestock. So the main stakeholders, in my opinion, are the citizens, all of them, but of course we have to work a lot with livestock breeders, uh, with farmers, uh, with hunters, with truffle pickers. And getting back to poisoning, they can also poison uh, dogs in general. But wildlife, if uh, foxes or other uh, carnivores are eating the baits that they leave on purpose to kill their uh, competitors' dogs, uh, it's an everyday uh, job speaking to everybody, trying to engage uh, all of them uh, in our uh, work. Because really, I believe that killing animals or uh, polluting rivers or all these uh, environmental crimes are against uh, the whole community, against uh, humanity in general, and we need everybody to be conscious of this. Truffle pickers really weren't on my radar as a stakeholder group needing to be engaged against indirectly poisoning wildlife. Yet it's not surprising when there's money to be made. There's usually a dishonourable few who are willing to overstep the mark and cross over into illegal activities. And there's plenty of money in truffles. You can sell these prize fungi for hundreds to thousands of euros per kilo. They're worth so much because they're highly seasonal, notoriously difficult to farm and need specific habitats to thrive. A truffle hunter, or cavatore, utilise the powerful noses of dogs to find their treasure. A well-trained dog is worth its weight in gold. Mario tells me of a case recently at a nearby gas station where bait was spread around and 30 dogs were killed. As if that wasn't bad enough, baits can of course be picked up by the vultures, bears, or find their way into the soils and watercourses. Appealing to hearts and minds is a constant challenge, but by increasing our knowledge, the behavioural patterns of the past should change with the times, and that's true for most aspects of rewilding work. We have um, mapped many barriers uh, in the rivers in our uh, landscape in the central Apennines, and the numbers of, uh, we collected of these dams, weirs, uh, are very, very uh, large. So we are concerned about this river fragmentation, which of course uh, uh, makes um, uh, the life of uh, some fish very hard. And uh, our work uh, is uh, aimed to reconnect uh, some uh, river stretches. It's not easy because, of course, uh, uh, we have a tradition, let's say, in uh, river fragmentation. So many engineers are more uh, trained to build dams than uh, destroying them. Yeah, I can imagine that. And so for us it's a real challenge even to change this culture and make people aware that, about the importance of having free-flowing rivers. We are uh, building the expertise to get to the point uh, uh, we can uh, demolish uh, those weirs. When you think of wildlife on the river, what do you think of? Salmon? Trout? Herons and kingfishers? Perhaps even otters and beavers? Have you ever thought about crayfish? Well, thankfully, the Rewilding Apennines team do. 
and when I heard they have a captive breeding centre for these native crustaceans, I had to request a visit to see how it all worked and why they were deemed important enough to dedicate substantial resources to. Mario's agreed to take me to meet Giuseppe, who's been the man in charge of the white-clawed crayfish breeding facility since 2008. He feeds them and breeds them, whilst also organising education activities involving schools and local communities. Happily for me, he also runs a local hotel, which meant that before we ventured out, we sat down to an enjoyable lunch of homemade ragu with a local beer to boot. I am truly on board with visiting Italian rewilding initiatives. After warming ourselves up by the fire, we head back out into the cold Apennine air and wind our way up to the breeding facility, which sits on the edge of a pristine-looking river cascading through ancient beech woods. This is essentially perfect habitat for Yeah, yeah it's crayfish. good because, uh, as you see, the water doesn't flow very quickly. Mm-hmm. It creates this kind of pools where they can stay. And there is no you know, strong uh, stream yeah, that yeah. moves them uh, downstream. We head through the padlock gate, and in front of us is the cabin which houses the tanks for the juveniles. There's an outdoor pond where the adults are taking shelter under some makeshift caves. There is a claw, claw sticking out. Oh yes, yes, I can just see it, yeah. <laughs> they are in their uh, hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crayfish hotel. manor. <laughs> <laughs> Crayfish is a crustacean and is a keystone species of river ecosystems. It's also a bioindicator, means that when you have a crayfish, water is very pure, at least there is no chemical pollution. And we are in the Cascata del Verde Regional Nature Reserve, and uh, the Verde River was uh, once uh, full of crayfish. There was a very abundant population, but uh, because of the crayfish plague in uh, 2013, this population has been uh, almost uh, wiped off, destroyed. So uh, the crayfish is very important for uh, the riverine river ecosystems, uh, because as we said, it's a bioindicator but also is at the basis of the trophic um, cascade. Uh, but it also is, can be prey for um, birds, uh, water birds, uh, otters, uh, trout, but can be also a predator. So uh, it acts uh, in many different roles. And for this reason, we believe that it's a kingston species. And uh, thanks to this breeding center, that uh, Giuseppe is uh, managing uh, with the rewilding Apennines. We are uh, releasing young crayfish bred in the breeding center back into the river and we aim uh, to restore the population of crayfish in the Verde River. Although crayfish need very clean water to thrive and are extremely sensitive to chemical pollution, one of the main accelerators of the demise was actually crayfish plague. This disease is a water mould that infects some species of crayfish. It kills the native white clawed within just a few weeks. It was most likely brought to Europe by imported signal crayfish from North America. They host the disease, but are unaffected by it, meaning that once they get into a water system, they quickly replace the natives. Here on the River Verde, there aren't any invasive species, but the mould was probably brought in by poachers 
or people releasing trout into the river that used the same water where non-native crayfish were present. Thankfully, if the American signals aren't around, the spores of the mould leave the water source relatively quickly, and you can then start restoring the native species with great success. Allora, praticamente... So, um, in the center there are uh, some tubs uh, for um, adult crayfish and they are, uh, the tubs are actually, for the adults, are outside and uh, the adults are uh, mating, breeding, in the period between September and November. So now we have uh, some females with eggs and they stay outside, while uh, inside, in the, um, the building, there are tubs with juvenile crayfish and uh, in general the females are um, uh, actually the, egg, the eggs are hatching in um, June, around June. The, the larvae are staying around their mother for at least one month. Then uh, the adults are going back uh, to the external tubs while the juveniles are growing inside and ready for release in the river. Or, soon after this month they have spent with their mothers or uh, later even uh, next spring when they are uh, one year old and their shell is stronger. Every year around 4,000 juveniles are produced in the facility and generally around half of those mature and become eligible for release after taking into account the natural mortality at the larval stage. They're put into pools in the neighbouring river when the temperatures are warmer giving them the best chance of survival in their new wild home. So we are quite happy with what we are achieving only with the Borello Breeding Centre. Uh, the thing is that uh, we aim to release at least 1,000 or 2,000 more that probably we are achieving next year anyway, so within uh, uh, the time frame that we were uh, planning. Uh, of course, if we had other uh, three fully functional breeding centres, we would uh, scale up uh, the numbers of crayfish released. And uh, of course the, ambitious, the ambition is to have the same um, population as before, as before this uh, plague. So if uh, Giuseppe remembers that there were uh, almost 100 uh, crayfish uh, in a single pool of the, of the river, we want to uh, get to the same uh, result but it seems that there is still quite a long way um, to, to this uh, result. Using that single pool as a population indicator, the number of crayfish plummeted off a cliff edge from around 100 to zero. They all died from the plague. As of last year, they were delighted to count 20 in there. Numbers are rebuilding, with many more juveniles waiting to head out the doors soon. The population of breeding adults in the wild will hopefully continue to rise. Crayfish Manor will be rebuilt in its natural home. What uh, Giuseppe realised is that um, all the children, the young people coming and visit the breeding centre get totally surprised and uh, interested in, uh, in the crayfish and he can notice that then they are real, real uh, ambassadors of this uh, species. And uh, of course the final uh, goal is uh, that everybody is uh, engaged with the um, conservation of the crayfish and uh, Giuseppe believes uh, that uh, the crayfish is the symbol, the iconic species of the, the area and uh, many people are getting aware of that. 
First-hand experience is so important for building interest and growing love and support for wildlife and wild places. And let's be honest, it's a wee bit easier getting hands-on with crayfish than it is with bears. That, my friends, is ill-advised. However, the team don't shy away from the bigger challenge of bear conservation. No, no. They are committed to the big and the small. I'm excited to learn about this iconic mammal and what's involved with saving a subspecies of Europe's largest terrestrial predator. We leave Giuseppe and the crayfish behind as we get back on the road to meet Angela Tavone. As we drive along the highway, every second sign is a warning about watching speed for crossing pairs. Angela is the communications manager here, and she's long volunteered for NGOs involved in bear conservation. She's encyclopedic on everything to do with these large mammals. The Marsican brown bear is a subspecies of brown bear, which is unique uh, in the central Apennines of Italy. It's an endangered subspecies because uh, just 60 or 70s are left. This population is unique because uh, according to a recent research, the Marsican brown bear went away from the brown bear uh, in Europe just uh, three or four thousand years ago. Uh, so they were isolated in the peninsula of Italy and uh, centennial by centennials, humans threatened uh, these uh, subspecies and they were just uh, on the brink of extinctions uh, like 100 years ago. They are still endangered and uh, they are protected since 1939. The Marsican brown bear differs from other subspecies of European brown bear in a number of ways. They live more of a vegetarian existence than some of their cousins, with around 80% of their diet focused on plant matter, berries, nuts and seeds. They also differ in their winter hibernation, with less of a single consecutive slumber and more of a series of very long naps. Eat, sleep, wake, repeat. Another uh, characteristic which is very unique uh, about the Marsican brown bear is its behaviour. Let's say it's not aggressive. Probably this behaviour evolved accordingly with uh, uh, the persecution of humans as well as let's say the food resources that he found he always found uh, in the in the Apennines in the past humans were able to kill and to hunt on the most aggressive individuals so during the uh, generations only the less aggressive uh, ones um, reprodu- reproduced uh, and so these characteristics was uh, of course brought uh, ahead in terms of uh, genetics uh, and another uh, explanation is that there is not such a big competition for the marsican bear in terms of food resources and so this brought the subspecies to do not have uh, a very aggressive uh, behavior the hibernation that bears undertake is still somewhat of a mystery for animal biologists the fact that such a large animal can go from eating thousands and thousands of calories every day to slowing down all its bodily functions and slip into a season-long sleep is pretty incredible. Whilst other hibernators allow their body temperatures to drop, bears hardly lose any heat at all. They somehow manage this despite their heart rate plummeting by 75%. They stop defecating and urinating. Heck, they don't even eat or drink. Females do all this whilst even having to nurse twins or triplets. 
They hibernate from December to March or April. It really depends on how the winter season goes. But we are observing year after year that this period is becoming shorter and shorter, probably because of the effect of climate change. Uh, we have always many uh, warmer days during winter time. Uh, and when the temperatures uh, rise, they simply feel to wake up and go around, not far away from the den, looking for food. So it's uh, a metabolism uh, response and who knows if it affects on their uh, health in the future. The first ecological rule that uh, comes to my mind is that the bear can spread the seeds of several fruit plants. For example, the bear eats a lot of fresh fruit, so while it's, uh, it's eating, uh, it moves a lot in the landscape and through uh, its excrements, it can spread these uh, seeds. In a way, uh, the bear uh, can also shape, in a way, the landscape. Mm. Shapes its own environment. It yes. almost uh, helps yes. grow its own food resource. Exactly. The answer to the ancient proverb, does a bear shit in the woods, is absolutely yes. And it's a good job they do too. Whilst they may well be mostly vegetarian, they're opportunistic in their predation and scavenging, and so help to keep food webs balanced and nutrients recycled. Their size and foraging behaviour, sometimes turning over rocks, digging out ants or clawing at rotten wood, opens up a wave of many opportunities for other species to take advantage of. The female bears can reproduce every three, four years, but they start reproducing just when uh, they are five or six years old. If you think that a bear can live until 20, 25 years, you can count how many uh, reproductive seasons they can have. So not very much. And uh, every year we have five or six or seven uh, female bears that can reproduce, but it really depends on many factors. I mean, the, it's quite shocking to hear, isn't it? Because uh, if you, you think of the overall population of mosque and brown bears, you said was 50 or 60, but then you narrow that down to the amount of um, breeding females is only five, six, seven. That's quite a scary number, actually. Yes, it is. What we really want to see is that uh, female bears can uh, move away from this core area, which is the Abruzzo Lazio Molise National Park, where the, um, the population resisted during the last centuries. And if the females can move away in other suitable areas, like other protected areas of the, the central Apennines, they can start new families of bears. Uh, so this is the first input to the population growing in terms of numbers of, uh, of bears and to expand their home range. According to uh, a study of the University of Rome, La Sapienza, the central Apennines is suitable for a bear population of 200 to 150 individuals. So this number can be a good achievement. Uh, probably we can, at that time, <laughs> if it happens, can uh, feel uh, much more relieved uh, in terms of bringing back from the extinction the, these iconic species. But I think there's a need, a lot of work to do. Several studies have shown a strong relationship between a female's body condition in the autumn and their reproductive success. This would suggest the best way to ensure the longevity of this subspecies is to make sure their environment is in tip-top condition. 
well-nourished females have larger litter sizes, can lactate for longer and produce higher quality milk. These bears run a biological process called embryonic diapause, meaning the fertilised eggs have delayed implantation until the mother is in good physiological condition. Uh, and the cubs are very tiny, like uh, three, five hundred grams. They completely depend on uh, their mom and they drink mother milk in the, in the den during the hibernation season. When they are five months, more or less, they can uh, go outside the den and can follow the mother to explore uh, their new world and uh, to understand uh, where to, to eat and what to eat and what are the threats. The main threats to the mask and brown bear tend to surround human infrastructure. Roads, railways and settlements all have an effect. On average, a single bear a year is lost to road traffic collisions, which may not sound a lot, but when the population is sitting at the 50-60 mark, each loss is catastrophic. Hence all the warning signs and speed limits. They're even trialling specialist sensors on some of the danger points on the highway, where warning lights signal to the drivers that animals have been detected nearby and auditory warnings such as recorded dogs barking are played to the wildlife to try and spook the animals away from the road. In the mountains, a number of open water wells that were used to collect rainwater for flocks of sheep have led to several bears falling in and drowning. They're now being made safe with metal grids. These simple but effective measures are crucial because every bear counts. The Apennines team are also hoping to reduce human-bear conflict Remember that 20% of the bear's diet, which isn't vegetarian? Yeah, well, they have been known to help themselves to the odd chicken, sheep, calf, and of course, beekeeper's honey. How can Angela and her team ensure co-prosperity with this situation in mind? In order to avoid conflicts or to mitigate conflicts, since 2014, we have been installing uh, many uh, preventive measures to protect these little farms and these uh, beehives around the landscape. So nowadays there are more than 350 preventive measures that we installed uh, all around the, the landscape. These preventive measures can be a practical tool in order to avoid, uh, of course, the damage, but also it's an important communication tool as well because our team members go to these uh, breeders or uh, uh, beekeepers, for example, can speak to them, can make them understand the importance of protecting their goods and to keep these, uh, for example, electric fence always uh, very functional uh, in order to avoid any damage. So it's also an important tool to educate in long term these people to be more tolerant towards the bears, to accept the presence and also to spread the word to this person, for example, to speak about in a good term uh, of the, the function of this electric fence or uh, we also install a metal gate uh, in the chicken coops. Which is probably the most important or effective tool you can get is when you get farmers speaking to other farmers in a positive fashion, right? So exactly. So if, you, if yeah. you light that touch paper and it, and it goes, that's probably the most effective way to get that message across. Yes, absolutely. We can learn a lot from other people's experiences. For me, that's a large part of why I'm doing this podcast, to accumulate ideas from across the continent and to share them with others. I absolutely intend to take one or two back home to Scotland and try to figure out how similar approaches could work there. The rewilding Apennines team did the same. 
they realised they could learn a lot from Canadians who have been developing bear-smart communities to address concerns around black bears. Some team members went to British Columbia because of the, this uh, co-funded uh, EU initiative, which is called Life Bearsmark Corridors. We started this initiative in 2022, and the first step uh, was to understand in another place, in another country, what is a Bearsmark community, how it works, and what are the characteristics that we can bring to, to our landscape. They understood that uh, the Bearsmark community was a need that communities had from grassroots. Because over there, there is a huge population of black bears, but a lot of these bears were killed because they uh, used to go to the uh, urban areas. At some point, people uh, started to ask themselves, but why uh, are we allowing all these bears killing? Because of our bad behaviours. In the central Apennines, bear smart communities will utilise bear-proof bins, install electric fences for gardens with fruit trees or chickens, and have conservation officers that will be on hand to advise on best practices. They'll maybe even restore previously abandoned orchards up in the hills to provide a bit of a helping hand to this critically endangered subspecies, whilst encouraging them away from more urban larders, and crucially, away from the roads. Every calorie consumed in safety is one less they may need to venture into a village for. For bear-smart communities to truly succeed, they need the buy-in and driving force to come from local people. Outsiders can help, but it's those actually living alongside these animals that will make or break this approach. I'm always fascinated by the different relationships people have with rewilding. Opinions differ from person to person, town to town and country to country, and they're almost always driven by emotion. One of the people working on fostering these relationships is Valerio, the Rewilding Apennines Enterprise Manager. We meet at a viewpoint overlooking Petarano Sugizio. As it started raining, Valerio suggests we head for a coffee at one of the local producers he works with. And so what's, what's different about the way that um, this lady does cheese making to mm. say someone, I don't know, in another region that does cheese making? What's, what's the sustainable kind of... Well, of you know, she's, she's, she's making cheese in a territory with a high density of uh, predators, of wolves. Mm. So, you know, she needs to think about this every time. So she needs to, first of all, uh, to make a living out of it, she needs to find new solutions to prevent the conflict uh, or to mitigate the conflict. And so they, for example, you know, they have uh, increased the number of guardian dogs on their farm. Uh, and I think guardian dogs are still one of the most recognized coexistence tools uh, we have in this area. There is a specific breed of, uh, of dogs called Abruzzese, okay. which you might have seen at some yeah. point. They're big, white and yes, hairy. I've seen them, yeah. um, and people from all over the world, they come here to understand how you can breed an Abruzzese dog. Okay. Uh, is that a dog? Is that an Abruzzese <laughs> dog? It looks like one. I mean, that was fortunate timing. They have also um, bought some donkeys who are quite sensitive to uh, 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 predators. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so they, you know, if, if, if you, you can hear a donkey um, if there are wolves around, but you know, generally speaking, is about the, the the relation that they they have with this land. Uh, they are fully aware that you know this is you know this is nature, and they 
they're, they're not trying to go away from it. Yes. They're not, uh, you know, trying to go away from the conflict. They try to accept it. Mm. Uh, and I think we need conflict in our life. Huh? Yeah. Uh, it's true that we work a lot on the prevention of conflict. Yeah. Uh, but conflicts, you know, they have a huge impact on your life. And so I like to think that you can become a better human being through the conflict. We reach the town of Simona, where Valerio leads me through the most enchanting doorway. Stone-arched with a large oak door, inscribed with Alla Casa Vecchia, which translates as to the old house. A goat statue, goat-shaped wooden planter and goat door sign give me a little hint as to the type of cheese they make inside. We descend the stairs into the most beautiful room with a crackling open fire, copper pans adorning the walls and an array of chilies, garlics and grapes hanging from a drying rack above. They make the cheese in the back and below us is a single dining table where people drop in to have some coffee or baked goods whilst purchasing some of the fantastic looking cheeses. Virginia, who runs the farm and business with her family, is kind enough to bring us both. I remind myself I'm here to find out what Valerio does and that I must not get too distracted by the edible delights in front of me. And my role is uh, very much connected to trying to connect rewilding with uh, the different types of economies we have in the area. So that means I am heavily involved in food and tourism. Uh, we're creating a network of businesses we work with. So a lot of the work that I do is with small or medium-sized enterprises who are trying to uh, have a business in this area. And then there is also work towards uh, trying to align land management practices with rewilding and trying to find new ways to generate revenues out of it. In my experience, um, I think one of the mistakes that traditional and conventional conservation actors have done in the past was to leave the local enterprises out of the picture. Uh, and so in the past they have, they have been concerned to make deal with public landowners, i.e. municipalities, to create this uh, initiative, conservation initiatives, but they weren't really considering, you know, once we create um, um, an initiative, how do we ensure that people can stay, that young people can still continue to uh, make a living out of it. Um, and so that's why I think it's important for, uh, for a rewilding initiative to understand what is the role of an entrepreneur in a rewilding landscape. Um, and, and I think in the case of Central Apennines, this is even more important because people are living. Uh, and, and there has been a depopulation process for the last 100 years. But most of the initiatives across the territories are not focusing on how can we think about small economic, and by small I mean that I'm not looking for a, a large-scale solution here, but I'm looking to lots of little initiatives focused on quality, uh, whether it's a bar or a restaurant or a, or, a, or a wine producer, 
how can we can think about all these little activities focused on quality and artisanality in this rewilding landscape and how we can do it all together within and beyond the borders of protected areas. One area Valerio wishes to work on is by looking at the common lands in the hills. Most of the surrounding lands here are owned by the municipality and they rent that out to raise revenue, usually to farmers for grazing or foresters for harvesting trees. They're extractive. What if they could rent that land for rewilding activities and then sell on the product, so to speak, as biodiversity credits? Although there's no legal framework for this in Italy yet, the municipality would still raise money from leasing their land, and rather than taking from nature, they'd be adding to it instead. You've probably all heard of carbon credits, where you can effectively sell the carbon stored from a particular action like tree planting. Well, biodiversity credits are the same, but the measurable outcome is more nature rather than just carbon. It's early days in this form of trade, and I've heard both good and bad stories from the carbon market. If done well, though, with principled organisations and transparent actions, they could channel private money into net nature gain. One of the uh, initiatives we are exploring with a local online platform called Bruzy is to create this Bear Smart box, which includes products from different Bear Smart communities so that they can first and foremost have a platform where they can have a conversation and so they meet regularly, they talk to each other. And the other day I realized that one of the farmer is now selling his products to one of the hoteliers that we have in this network. And I didn't know about it. So there are lots of things that are happening behind the scenes. And I see our role as an NGO to create these opportunities because nobody's creating the opportunities to collect people. People didn't know that there was a cider farmer in the Ortona de Marci. People weren't aware about Virginia's cheese. And I think our role as an NGO is to give them a possibility to know each other and trying our best to create promotional uh, activities so that we can give more visibility to what they do. And the Bear Smart Box goes in that direction. I also think we should also think about not just the production, but also the consumption of these products. Mm. Because we are always thinking about how do we produce products that are more environmentally friendly, but we should also think how do we consume this product? And today there are some fantastic wines that are made in Italy that are sold in Japan, that are sold in the US, and nobody knows about these products in the area. Mm -hmm. I want to live in a world where everybody's drinking cider, everybody's having uh, raw milk cheese at their table. And this should be done with a local focus. So there is a huge amount of work to be done in that direction because it's not enough to produce an environmentally friendly product. It's also important to understand where that product is consumed, how that product is consumed, what is the impact of the trade of that product. I like Valerio. He's very philosophic in his outlook. He's also completely right. Every product we buy is a choice, and that can be a sustainable one or an unsustainable one. Not every choice is going to be perfect, but we can certainly try to tip the scales in the right direction. Sustainable products aren't limited to things you can eat. They can be experiences too. There's a growing number of people who want holidays that give back. If you're listening to this and like the sound of rewilding in the central Apennines, good news, you can get involved.
And so we came up with this idea of the rewilding week, which is really based on our activities. So every week we have a volunteering program. We have been doing this uh, for a while now. And we, uh, every day we have activities that we have to do. And so the rewilding week is not designed on the needs of the participant. It's really much designed on our necessity. You know, we end up having a nice glass of wine every now and then, but, uh, and we also visit some of these local businesses. But it's really important that we keep the focus on this um, aspect. And so people come with us, um, small groups, a maximum eight people, and they spend time with the field officers. And they are now, we are also doing rewilding weekends like Portugal and also rewilding days because maybe people don't have enough time to do a whole week so that um, they can come and tackle a specific topic. So maybe we, we, we try to tie the rewilding day to the Griffin Vulture project and we explore that. And uh, next one hopefully will be on the 10th of December where we're launching a new uh, beer, a new recipe that we have done with a local brewery. And so there will be an excursion, a walk in the morning and a beer tasting in the end. Put me down for that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there will be a um, reflection on the Bearsmark community initiative, what's working, what's not working. And so that's the spirit of, uh, of, of, of the concept, let's say. Wonderful. For me, the central Apennines has it all. Iconic wildlife, spectacular scenery, awesome food and a team absolutely passionate about people and place. They're 100% committed to this vision of co-prosperity, where marsic and brown bears are no longer on the brink, where crayfish fill the pools of the local rivers and local communities are thriving on the back of a nature-based economy. I so hope that Mario and his colleagues achieve their vision of growing the Apennine Ecological Corridor all the way up to the Alps connecting these great mountain ranges as one and allowing a highway of Italian wildlife to merge into the continent. I've one last experience before my time ends here. I promised you right at the beginning and it wouldn't be right of me to bow out now. You deserve better than that. I want you to try some of the cheese. Um, Based on seasonality, you really taste the different in the end product. So in spring, in March, April and May, yeah. there is more uh, variety of plants. Mm. So it's a more of an aromatic cheese. Wow. It, now, in autumn, there are more wild berries around. So the diet of the animal is different huh. and the fat content is higher. So the one from spring is more, it has, it has more aromatics but the one from now, it has higher fat content, so it's tastier. And traditionally speaking, if you would speak to an old shepherd, they would always prefer the cheese of the autumn because uh, it's yeah. more tasty. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I never think of these things, but it makes perfect sense. And, and I, I suppose shows the difference between just raising animals on monoculture grass to a more natural kind of grazing process. It all right. adds all the flavor and all the goodness into the, into the cheeses. Amazing. Virginia brings out a selection of five of her cheeses from all the different seasons. It's a literal smorgasbord of cheese, and I'm here for it. Now, I'm not going to make you sit through an entire tasting, but here's a quick highlight reel. Mmm, yep, that is delicious. Mmm, 
really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm. People often say to me that it must be a glamorous job visiting all these inspiring rewilding initiatives in some of the most beautiful locations across Europe. Well, sometimes when it's rainy and cold outside, you've got to forego the adventure, sit indoors and take one for the team. Uh, do you want a glass of wine? <laughs> yeah. This, this day is getting better and better. Do you want to Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining me for episode 12 of the Rewild podcast. If I made you hungry right at the end there, I make no apologies. Trust me, food tastes better when it gives back to nature. A huge thanks to Mario, Giuseppe, Angela, Valerio and Virginia for your insights and your hospitality. As always, thanks to Beluga Lagoon for the tunes and Gemma Shooter for the artwork. The biggest of thanks goes to Rewilding Europe for collaborating with me on this series. The Central Apennines is one of ten inspiring rewilding landscapes across the continent, set up with local teams on the ground. If you're enjoying the series, please do consider giving us a rating or review on whichever platform you're listening to us from. It's great to hear your thoughts and helps us massively in spreading the good word of rewilding. Join us next month, as we'll be in the southern Carpathians of Romania. Catch you next time.